Well, it looks like you all hated me so much that you've given me this award for it. That it can be about the performance and not the politics. This moment is so much bigger than me. And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. And thank all of you who voted for me and all of you who didn't, please excuse me. I deserve this, thank you. Hello and welcome back to Academy Queens. I am Brandon Stanwyck. And I am Joey Gentile. And we have a very special episode um, here for you today. Something we have been actually talking about doing for a while now. And I'm very glad we got this very special guest on board for this episode today. Yes, uh, this is actually quite cool because we have talked about this guy, uh, I would actually say quite often, in when it came to talking about Cleveland film and the film industry here. Um, you know, since the inception of Academy Queen. So it's kind of cool to finally have him with us. Um, I want to play a little game, though, before we bring him on really quick. You ready for this? Okay. What, what, and this man is the mold, the glue that holds all of this together. I like a good six degrees of separation. So I got to ask you, what does MTV's real world, I'm sorry, MTV's road rules have to do with The Invisible Man, the new film that came out this year from Universal? You know, I'm going to be honest, I don't really know what Road Rules is. Wow, okay. Um, were you alive at all in the 90s and 2000s, or...? Allegedly. Okay. Well, with that said, get this. MTV's Road Rules Extreme cast Angela Trimber in 2004 as the final cast member to join uh, the Winnebago. I know Trimber... What's up? I know who she is. Yes. Trimber was in The Kings of Summer. Produced by our guest today, Mr. Tyler Davidson. He also then produced Compliance with Ann Dowd. Ann Dowd is currently on The Handmaid's Tale with Elizabeth Moss, and Elizabeth Moss was the star of The Invisible Man. All right. So look at that. (laughs) So stupid, I know, but I had to. And without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, we have Mr. Tyler Davidson. Welcome to the show. Hey, guys. Great to be on. Uh, Thank you so much for this. That was such a that was such an easy thing you mentioned, Joey. I can't believe Brandon didn't get it, but uh, so obvious, right? <laughs> Hello. Um, well, funny thing, I'm the one who picked up Angela from the airport when she came into Cleveland to do the Kings of Summer. So that's how I know who she is. Well, do you remember what happened to Angela uh, shortly after arriving in town on? For that movie i don't know if you recall wasn't she injured she broke she, her ankle or something she was so this was during the the late stages of pre-production right before we were going to shoot and everyone had come to town and the director jordan vote roberts wanted to take everyone on a little location scout throughout chagrin falls that happened to include a jumping off of the falls foray in which angela joined and uh injured herself off the landing so she she spent i think the first few days of the shoot in a wheelchair actually it was it was rough but uh she she made it through ouch Uh, (laughs) yeah so the only reason why i remember even knowing because i did not work on the kings of summer with you guys um this story is because a friend of mine and this is how tyler and i actually met was a production assistant on kings of summer uh caitlin mcbride Oh, of course. She's yes. great. I, I haven't been in touch with her in a while, but she she was fantastic. Yeah. 
So that's how I knew that because for somehow or for some reason, I don't know why Angela had come up in conversation one day with Caitlin and I, and she was like, oh, yeah, this happened. I was like, there's a little <laughs> juice for everybody. Um, there you go. Well, like I like we mentioned, um, you're from Cleveland, the well, the Cleveland area, um, and you've predominantly stayed in the area to produce your films. Um, so we're going to dive right in, talk about your career, where you're at now. Um, Brandon, start us off. Right. So before we get into the biographical stuff, um, I want to throw out a very simple question, but um, it's one that I think eludes a lot of people. A lot of people don't really know what exactly a producer does. So, uh, Tyler, what does a producer do? Well, there's no one definition, which is probably lending itself to the confusion that a lot of people have about the job description. But uh, essentially, it's the person that puts all of the elements of a film together and then oversees from a kind of management perspective the whole thing so there are a couple different kinds of producers in certainly in the independent film world there are creative producers that are involved in putting the script together with you know the screenwriter helping on the script development uh bringing the director into the fold if that's someone separate from the screenwriter um, you know, getting involved in the casting process, the whole bit. And then there's also producers that focus on the financial side of the process, putting the film financing together. I happen to be one of the producers that is rare in the industry and in that I do both of those things. My company uh, puts together financing for these films, but I also consider myself first and foremost a creative producer. That's certainly the part of the job that I love the most. And did you always want to fill this position or did you sort of just fall into producing? I fell into it. You know, it's funny. I, I don't know if you would be able to talk to any aspiring filmmaker in high school uh, now who if you ask what they wanted to do or they would say they wanted to be a producer I, I rarely encounter those people i think most people as you said don't really know what that job entails uh, it is a bit elusive so uh, it wasn't for me until i had an opportunity to just jump into a project i was going to go to graduate school for film after finishing up uh, my undergrad at university of virginia and before I left for, or before I was going to leave for, for film school, my uncle had written a novel manuscript that he was trying to get an agent for. And uh, he attracted the interest of a, a filmmaker out of Vermont who wanted to adapt it and turn it into a movie. And my uncle and I huddled and decided, hey, maybe we would pitch this guy and the idea of our producing the film, not really knowing what that entailed at the time and uh the the filmmaker went for it i think he was thinking okay these guys are going to put the money together which we ultimately did but instead of going to film school i dove right in and was mentored by that filmmaker who had his own producing experience and learned on the job and that's really what uh, started me on this track so you skip film school you just dive right in, which I have great um, respect for. Um, I always kind of talk about 
you know, because I do stand-up comedy and I never studied comedy, that you either have it or you don't. Um, I, I, I look at things in a very Shelley Duvall type of way to where she once was quoted, I never went to acting school, but I never felt that I needed it because I enjoy the organic aspect of acting. So, yeah, you know, people who just kind of do it, like, big round of applause for you and others who do it as well. Because I have a thing, like, I can't teach you to be funny. You're either funny or you're not funny. So, like, that's how I look at the arts. Um, and I do obviously get met with some criticism personally, because, you know, you have, like, Lee Strasberg and the whole method acting aspect of things where they teach you to do that. But, yeah, kudos to you for doing that. I kind of want to just dive right into your first feature that you produced, um, Swedish Auto, um, starred Lucas Haas and a pre-Mad uh, Men January Jones. How is this that project that you were talking about that you just dove in with? So that actually was my second feature. The first one wow. that I was referencing was a, a film called The Year That Trembled, which was a, a, a coming-of-age story set in 1970. But uh, you know, it was a film that I that I like quite a bit. Uh, I learned a lot on that film. I, I think it was not met critically as a masterpiece, but um, I think that you know it's a strong film, and we're actually working to to get it out on Amazon Prime in, in the coming months here. But I did transition from there to Swedish Auto after moving to Los Angeles. Uh, because, of course, after filming The Year That Trembled in Northeast Ohio, I thought, OK, I'm a producer now and I, there's a rule that I need to pack up and move to L.A. because that's just what you're supposed to do. So I did live in L.A. for a number of years. I was a partner at a film and television company called The Lab Entertainment Group, and we were trying to get a lot of things going at that time in film and television, so many things that we actually got none of them off the ground. Our focus was just too broad. And it wasn't until I decided with, uh, at that time, um, the person that I was soon to marry, uh, that we wanted to have children and, and leave LA and get back to Northeast Ohio. So it wasn't until I did returned to the Cleveland area that I got Swedish Auto off the ground simply by narrowing my focus onto one project in particular. And that's, that's how that came to be. So after this film, you, it seems, according to your IMDb profile, that you took a few years before Take Shelter had come out. Because it seems like once you got to Take Shelter, you were pumping out a film almost every year. So my question is then for you, what, how do I put this? I guess what took you so long to find Take Shelter to to choose that as your project, your next one? Sure. So for me, it, it was all about uh, putting myself in a position to catch some positive momentum that would carry into additional projects. And I didn't, the, the lapse in time of film credits on my resume uh, was not because I intended to take years off in between Swedish Auto and Take Shelter. It was that I had that much of a hard time getting something off the ground in that period. It, uh, Swedish Auto 
um, was, you know, a low budget film that was released by IFC. And that in and of itself gave me the opportunity to kind of introduce my, or reintroduce myself to the industry as uh, a person who had, you know, made a film with a, uh, an established distributor behind it. And also what I did at that time is I made the decision to characterize myself as a producer slash financier. And I, I wasn't saying that, that I personally had the money to finance these films, but I said that I had partners who were willing to finance films. And when I said that, the industry really kind of opened its doors to uh, sharing the best material that was circulating in the independent film world with me on the basis of thinking that I could put it together with financial resources that I had access to. So that really was the move that I made uh, strategically and not really knowing at the time the effect that that would have ultimately, but that's what got me access to a script like Take Shelter, which came from a friend of mine, not a friend that I had just made at that time, uh, that was at a big talent agency who was a big fan of the writer-director Jeff Nichols, coming off of Jeff's, Jeff's film, Shotgun Stories. And he passed me the script, and uh, you know I loved it from the start. And that, that started that process. But uh, Take Shelter was a huge breakthrough for me. And, you know, after that, it was a critical and financial success for our investors. And it really allowed me to, to move into the next film. And that momentum just continued to carry on. So um, in terms of, like, momentum, um, could, could you talk about the what the distribution process is like through the a producer's lens, like the whole Sundance festival circuit and how your movie actually gets out there before the success is even able to come? Sure. Well, this is the big question that, that everyone who has my job is constantly discussing these days because it's such a, a massively changing landscape really week to week especially now with the uh you know with the coronavirus crisis so um this has been something that has always shifted over time when i was making take shelter the industry was such where there really was only one way to do it and that was to make a film that got into a one of the world's higher profile festivals that also functioned as a market, uh, and that would be in the US, the most prestigious American festival is Sundance. And so we got the film into Sundance. And in the case of Take Shelter, actually, Sony Pictures Classics bid for it uh, before we played at Sundance in a blind offer that was so sight unseen, they made an offer just because they, you know, for some specific reasons, they didn't necessarily want to wait till it premiered and then they would end up in a competitive bidding situation. But the, the point is, at that time, the model was make a film, get it into Sundance, take it so you're taking it to the market in that kind of highly charged and competitive environment and selling the film. 
to a distributor. Um, now, you know, there's not, there haven't even been festivals really going in, in the last few months. Um, there've been a, a number of major festivals around the world that do function as market festivals that have been canceled because of virus. So a lot of discussions are happening in, in terms of how do you create that same urgency to try to sell a film if you're not you know, creating that environment. Um, I don't have an answer for that yet. We're, we're in the process. We have a film that we want to sell uh, this year that we're discussing with sales agents on how we're going to approach that. But certainly there are a lot of different players in the market. Uh, the streamers like Netflix and Hulu and Amazon Prime and others are kind of the big voices in the room in the independent film world just because they have such deep pockets that they really kind of dictate the market value for these films and and they don't necessarily require a festival environment to to make their acquisitions so it's you know it's it's hard to put a finger on what what it looks like exactly now but i can tell you it's gone from you know get into sundance sell the film uh to something that is a bit more unknown Got it. Um, I have to ask this because I think this was like a big point also for Take Shelter's success that really set you off the mark, in my opinion, was your cast who you assembled for this movie. Because as all of us know, a cast can really make or break the film. Um, I mean, this is the film that, you know, you became an Independent Spirit Award nominee for. This is the film that really put... um, a lot of the Cleveland scene for filmmaking on the map as well. You know, you had Michael Shannon coming off maybe two or three years of his first Oscar nomination, but you also got Jessica Chastain before she was Jessica Chastain. Um, I guess my fanboyness of Jessica Chastain, I have to ask you, I mean, how, how did that come to be? Was that just through an audition for her or uh, because 2011 is the year that, actors dream of she had seven movies released including yours and a lot of her movies she got through referral from like al pacino to like terrence malick and then she comes into you and then leaves take shelter and goes and does the help i mean where did she come into play here for you yeah we, well we were we were lucky um so j- there was an executive producer on take shelter named sarah green and uh, Sarah is a, is a prolific and successful producer, and I, I'm not even clear as to exactly when she came on board the project. She, she, I believe, through the agency she had that uh, Jeff had at that time that she had had a relationship with, with Jeff, and you know, attached to lend her services to to the project in an executive producing capacity. Uh, Sarah had been producing Malick's films uh, in recent years, um, including The Tree of Life. So Sarah knew Jessica, and we had not been able to see any really uh, any of Jessica's work, and it wasn't a situation where we were necessarily getting her to audition. We heard she was fantastic, but Jeff got to go to 
uh, Austin, I believe, or somewhere, I think it was somewhere in Texas where Malik was in post and sit with him in the editing bay and watch footage of Jessica and hear Malik say that she was the best actress that he's ever worked with. And I was, you know, I mean, anyone in their right mind would be on board with uh, casting somebody with that kind of recommendation. And, and Jeff was certainly blown away by what he saw in the footage. And, um, and we cast her and, you know, she hadn't had any film. I think she had one film maybe that had come out prior, um, you know, wasn't a high profile film, but we basically cast her sight unseen on the basis of her being in Tree of Life and, uh, and that experience. And, you know, she, I think her performance in our film and in many films since uh, speaks for itself. I mean, she's just, She's just world-class, so um, very fortunate situation there. Are there any other actors who have been cast in your films who were cast in an unorthodox or unconventional way like that, where you don't have the standard cold read? Um, yeah, well, it's interesting because actors who we have attached who already have some kind of profile in the industry won't usually audition, uh, even if you want them to. Um, it, it's just kind of how it is. They, they feel like they have earned the ability to skip that process. And obviously, if they're, there are exceptions to that, depending on what the movie is. But for a movie with the resources of, of a low-budget independent film, you know, usually you have you look at their work and you decide if they're going to work in your film and and you make an offer. Um, and we've had many actors fall into that category that where we did not go through an audition process. Um, but it's either been that or typically it has been some kind of an audition process where we've had great casting directors who have gone out to. Uh, a swath of actors uh, based on the breakdown of the characters and gotten these actors to, to go on tape and, uh, and, and then we review that and, and get into the casting situation from there. So I'm trying to think if there's any like really unorthodox situations that are along the lines of the Jessica story. I'm, I'm not sure that there have been, it's usually been sort of a, either making an offer or going through the traditional process. So after Take Shelter, you follow that up with uh, three films in a row. Compliance, The Kings of Summer, The Signal, which could not be any more different from each other, <laughs> let alone how different they are from Take Shelter. I want to hit compliance really quick because we actually have um, a few questions from our Twitter uh, followers on that. Uh, just starting off really quick, a shout out to Jen. She goes at Sienna Miller with two R's. I've only seen compliance of Tyler's films and it's amazing. Major kudos. So she's a fan. Oh, that's um, cool. Thank you. Of course. From Tonichi Saitan asks, how did you ensure a safe space was created during the filming of compliance with such harsh material? So for those who haven't seen compliance, it's a pretty heavy film um, that has a lot to deal with harassment. And it's, I want to just say for the current climate we're in, it's pretty ahead of its time. 
Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I was actually um, just anticipation of, in anticipation of this discussion we're having now, kind of taking a look at a couple of the old, you know, compliance reviews and interviews with the writer director Craig Zobel, just because this was years ago for me. So I, you mm-hmm. know, I don't typically watch films that I've produced uh, regularly, certainly not, you know, long after uh, they've come out. And so I wanted to revisit that. But um, yeah, it, it look, it, it deals with themes that continue to resonate. And this was inspired by psychological experiments uh, from psychologists like Milgram to, uh, you know, the, the Stanford prison experiments, the Kitty Genovese story, different things that really explore our relationship to authority figures and how we react to them. And that that inspired Craig to, to take on this project. And I think he had a complete buy-in from everyone that we cast in the film as to what his goals were for the film, the nature of the material. Uh, I think everyone, he developed relationships with these people in the months leading up to shooting, you know, many discussions with them about the film, the themes of the film, his approach to the film, and a trust developed between the cast and Craig. And to the point that, you know, when we got to shooting the film, um, they were able to kind of let those barriers down and, and really immerse themselves in these in these challenging roles. So uh, once we once we started rolling, there were really no obstacles on that front. And I, I credit Craig and his ability to communicate his vision so clearly leading up to the shoot. To follow up on the compliance, the first question there um, at Rue Kanahati asks, how involved were you in Ann Dowd's awards campaign? Um, again, for those who don't know, and really this was almost pretty much a big breakthrough role for her. Um, she gets Independent Spirit and Critics' Choice. She's nominated all over the place. She wins the National Board of Review for Best Supporting Actress and is nominated at the AARP Movies for Grownups Awards, which is, I mentioned that because that is Brandon's favorite <laughs> award show. Um, <laughs> As a producer, when you get, hey, this film is amazing, there's this actor or actress who's on the road to a possible Oscar nomination, I mean, do you get involved in that campaign? I mean, what do you do? So it largely is in the court of the distributor of the film, uh, and it's predicated really on a couple of things. One, is it a, a performance that warrants that kind of campaign? But the second factor that's really critical is, has the film been exposed in a way that gives it a chance to win awards? Um, And generally that has to do with the nature of the release of the film. So those, I say those, I'm actually referring to uh, take shelter here as well, because we we really thought that Michael Shannon was going to get an Oscar nomination uh, for his performance in that. And, and likewise, uh, agreed, we felt that Ann Dowd deserved the same. But uh, those releases were both theatrical, um, meaning that they had a exclusive window in theaters before they went to home video 
uh, where audience had the opportunity to audiences had the opportunity to engage with the films, as did critics. Uh, and there was you were able to build a national conversation based on the theatrical release. So it you know those two boxes were checked. The performances were off the charts and campaigns were developed for them. But ultimately, you know, the, the films just, I, I believe, didn't quite break through enough in the mainstream to get enough attention from Academy voters. And, and really at that time, I, I don't think really it was until just a few years ago with, with Moonlight, um, winning you weren't seeing a whole lot of independent films breaking through uh, you know at that oscar level like i think they are can do better now i don't know if you guys agree with that but i think it's been trending more sort of indie in recent years but it wasn't hasn't always been like that yeah i mean brandon correct me if i'm wrong that La- the last decade really only saw Winter's Bone and Moonlight do that, right? Break into Best Picture? Um, I believe so. Yeah. I so, mean, the real, like, low, low-budget indie films. I mean, sometimes some movies really ride the line, claim they're indie, and I kind of squint my eyes a little bit. But Winter's <laughs> Bone and Moonlight are the two that I would think of as the, the true independent films that broke into the Best Picture races. Right, as opposed to the $30 million indie we got to right. love, gotta your, love uh, that. Your Silver Linings Playbook type movie. I was just going to mention that. Oh, no, Beast of the Southern Wild. Hello. We just did oh, true. Right. And, I mean, to be fair, it is easier to, to get an actor uh, a nomination, I think, coming from an independent film maybe than having the film itself be looked at as, as a best picture contender. But it's still really tough because at the end of the day as much as we don't want to feel that this is the case there is a certain popularity contest aspect to these processes just in terms of which films are getting watched um you know there's a lot of films to to look at so i you know i i understand how that that works from an academy member perspective i guess I want to ask you a little bit about Ohio. So the bulk of your movies are produced either in part or entirely in the state of Ohio. And besides uh, the fact that it's where you're from, what is so special about Ohio when it comes to producing a movie? Um, Well, you know, I've only really produced films in Ohio in Northeast Ohio. So I, I can't, speak to what the experience is like in other markets where there have been a lot of films made in particular Cincinnati has has attracted a lot of great films and filmmakers including a number of recent Todd Haynes movies Um, but certainly in this area I think there's just an incredible wealth of diverse and interesting locations for one thing um, you've got a lot of, you know, relative to uh, the age of, of our country, you have a lot of uh, history here, a lot of pockets of 
uh, interesting ethnic neighborhoods. Um, you know, you have uh, urban looks, you have suburban and rural all within a short span of geography from, from one another. Uh, so, you know, you can't really beat the authenticity from that per perspective. I think there's a lot to choose from here. Um, another thing that I love about shooting here is just the overall, I guess for the most part, the attitude that people have about movie making and the movie business here. There's a little bit of like an unjaded, if that's a word, um, perspective where uh, people, you know, see the, get the stars in their eyes over the, the romance of the idea of movie making and red carpets and, and everything that has to do with, with the industry. So I think when you approach someone in this area that maybe isn't accustomed to production on their street every other week, like you might have in New York or Los Angeles, it does feel like a special thing that people want to support and be a part of. And it's just generally speaking, there's a lot that you can get accomplished here that isn't really achievable certainly for the budget of these independent films, which are, are often small. So those, you know, those are the two leading factors. I think that there's, there are a number of good actors and strong members of the technical crew that reside in this area. Um, there's resources. So it's, you know, and at the end of the day, it's, it's my home. So uh, I'm always going to want to, support my hometown and see the benefits passed along from these productions to to the economy here and just uh you know the, the social morale factor that is positively impacted as well so you mentioned um the economy in addition to all of those things you just mentioned would you care to um talk a little bit about the ohio tax incentive and what tax incentives are and why they can be so attractive to productions yeah, it's funny that you mentioned that because I I completely overlooked that as a factor because to be honest, it's something that is such a given now in terms of what is a necessary part of uh, bringing a film to a region that I didn't even think of mentioning it. Like it, it's without the incentive, the other things are kind of rendered obsolete it's it's just the economics of filmmaking independent filmmaking are so challenging uh in terms of what the value of these films are nowadays on the market and how much they cost to make that if you don't have that financial edge of a tax incentive you it, it's not even really a conversation you can have so i would not have made any of these films in the state if not for the motion picture tax credit which essentially is just you know varies depending on the program that that each state has i mean not all states have incentive incentives but the ones that do in ohio it's a fully refundable tax credit just based on what you're spending in the state and i, I believe you get 30 percent back on your qualified expenditures and uh, that that is a crucial bit of money when you start to slice up the pie and look at how these films are recouped. 
See, I always find the production aspects so interesting because these aren't the things that, you know, people really know. So thank you so much for explaining it to not only us, but to others as well. So kudos to you. I think hearing all of that and dealing with all that all the time, I would go cross-eyed. So I got to give you props. <laughs> um, so if you haven't noticed by now, uh, Brandon goes for the technical. I go for your resume here on the questions here. Um, clients. I honestly would consider The Kings of Summer like a light, fun comedy. Um, some people call it drama. I would call it even a dramedy. Um, you move into The Signal, which is, shout out to Lynn Shea. I've worked with Lynn. She is awesome. Um, I, so you go into like horror sci-fi almost. But the one that sticks out to me, because it is so Cleveland, is The Land. Um, I knew Stephen, uh, the, the director, Stephen Campbell Jr. from high school. So I want to know how this came to you because he direct he directs it he writes it. I mean, is this something that he? How did you guys connect? How did the land come to be? Yeah, the land was a really cool one to make. Um, so as you just mentioned, the writer director Stephen Cable Jr. is from Cleveland, went to high school here, but then went out to LA to USC's film school. Um, he, in that school, he partnered with a couple other, uh, fledgling student producers who were also at USC, uh, guys by the name of, uh, Stephen Dr. Love, as he, uh, goes by and, uh, and Blake Pickens and Stephen Love had been calling me every few months um, going back to uh, Kings of Summer and, and a period of time after that movie had come out because they had this script that was that uh, Stephen Cable Jr. had written called Land of, of Misfits. It was the title at the time um, that was set in Cleveland and that, that certainly Stephen wanted to make in Cleveland. And I think it was as simple as that they had just kind of heard that I was the producer guy in Cleveland or, or somebody that they, you know, felt that they wanted to connect with to try to get help to get this film off the ground. And it, it really wasn't much more than that, that these guys were keeping in touch. They were working on the script at the time. Uh, I was waiting to get a draft of it. And I just thought it was great from the start. We did put a fair amount of work into that script um, with with Steven, but I feel like ultimately he really nailed it. And it was it was the script and it was just meeting Steven and and really seeing how how much of a command he had of the vision that he wanted for the film. Um, and then also he had he was just one of these crazy talents. Like he he had made a student film that I think I think it's called a different tree that HBO bought, and all of a sudden then he he got all these uh, great like high profile reps like managers and agents and it, it's like he was a discovery, and we felt like we were getting in on the ground floor of, of a, with a really special filmmaker. One other thing they did, they shot what they called a tonal short. Uh, 
based on the film that man i would love to take another look at that um one of these days because it's been years but they did this short and it was uh, if if anyone's familiar with the land or have seen the land uh it's these these boys who who grow up in the who are in the inner city high schoolers and they get caught up in a in a um kind of a drug scandal situation that kind of threatens everyone involved and in the short that he had these kids that he had cast who i guess get try to hold up like a convenience store and it just goes horribly wrong and it was just a few minutes long but it, it showed such an amazing like concentrated view of what he wanted to achieve just tonally and the performances and the cinematography it was all so impressive and so on point that i remember that was like a big factor in, in kind of and getting my company involved so that was really a cool thing to be a part of so after this you've hit live action films you're listed as an executive producer on an animated film called my entire high school uh sinking into the sea you're also <laughs> listed as an executive producer uh two parts of this start off you explain what a producer does can you explain to people what executive producers do and then what is it like working on animation and what are the challenges compared to live action sure well for tv executive producer is the main top credit it, and it's typically just the main producers who are, who are involved either as writers writers slash showrunners or as non-writing executive producers um, but in film producer is is that top credit they're the ones that actually get to receive the best picture oscars and you know kind of run the show from the, from a producing standpoint the executive producers in film um can have different roles that are usually a little bit more specific they you know maybe they're kind of um shepherds for the project that higher profile names from the filmmaking world that you know are are supporting the film in various ways opening doors for you that kind of thing um, they can be also uh, involved in the financing of the film. They could actually be investors that have put in the majority of the money often will take executive producer credits. So it just depends. There's no, like I said with producing, the same holds true with executive producing. There's no one definition, but um yeah, it's a it's certainly a, a big piece of it. And what was the other part of your question, Joey? I can't. The the challenge, if there is one, compared to live action filmmaking oh, right. and animation. Right. So to be honest, I haven't really been super hands-on with the animation process. We are actively producing and not just executive producing the follow-up feature film from that particular filmmaker who did my entire high school sinking into the sea a guy by the name of dash shaw who's just this incredible talent in my opinion um who comes from like a graphic novel illustrator background but is also a tremendous writer director which we discovered on my entire high school and now we're doing this new one with him called crypto zoo um and you know i'll tell you that <laughs> 
this this is not necessarily typical of how these uh, films get made, but Dash and his wife Jane are exceptions in that they are really doing so much of the work in terms of hand painting the the graphics of this film and doing the animation for the most part from their apartment in Richmond. And one thing that we just kind of stumbled into was the fact that this was a filmmaking process that we could didn't have to put the brakes on at all during COVID-19 breaking out in, in, in the country and in the world because it didn't really involve too many people other than the filmmaker himself. So that that has been kind of a happy accident uh, to relatively speaking, just in that we've been able to continue our work on that particular film. So with a lot of your films, your directors are writer directors like Jeff Nichols, Stephen Capel, and so on. How do you go about quote unquote casting a director like a Jordan Boat Roberts or a Melanie Laurent if they weren't attached to the screenplay to begin with? Yeah, and that is a, you know, the reason that I like working a lot of times with um, writers slash directors, directors that are directing their own scripts is because you know that there is just one vision that they are in complete command of that starts with the genesis of their idea manifest in the screenplay and then is seen through to the final product that it's not filtering through different people um, like you have when there is a separate director from a screenwriter. So when you are in that situation where you fall in love with a script that was written by somebody who is just not a director and you need to, to bring a director on, it's, it's probably the most critical um, part of the process that you're going to encounter. And in the case of Kings of Summer, Jordan actually was already attached to direct when we were introduced to the project. It came to us uh, from Big Beach. They had uh, produced little independent films like Little Miss Sunshine and and other mega smashes, but they were looking for a partner on this one, and they had already discovered Jordan and loved his short film that was an award winner at Sundance and felt that he had the right sensibility for, for this film, and and we agreed. So that that was that. Melanie was on Galveston was a different case where we were kind of a hundred percent behind that process from, from the outset. Um, we felt like Nick Pizzolatto's novel and adaptation, uh, of Galveston was sort of so hyper masculine in a way that we wanted to bring a different sensibility to that in the direction so that it wouldn't skew entirely that way in the finished product. Um, so we felt like that was a, a, a good and interesting choice to bring a female director to it. Melanie in particular had, had directed a film that had played in Cannes Critics Week called Respire, uh, English translation Breathe. And we thought that that movie, which explored the relationship between two young women primarily, 
showed this really deft handling of those very intimate relationship dynamics that we thought would translate to the relationship that is central to Galveston between the Ben Foster and Elle Fanning characters. And, um, you know, I think we definitely got that right. I think that the, the, the performances by those two in the film and the way that their relationship comes off is, is really authentic and something that, you know, we're, we're really proud of. So that's how that happened. So really quick, one of my favorite moments in an awards acceptance speech is actually when Melanie Griffith won her Golden Globe for Working Girl, because she starts to thank everybody and she starts to thank her producers. And she said, you know, they're at, I forget who it was. And she's like, uh, he's actually a producer you actually want on set. <laughs> Going off of that, I had texted you probably around the Oscar season, the year Olivia Coleman won for the favorites. So it would have been 2018, 2019 because I was doing transcribing for Gold Derby on a Ben Foster interview for uh, Leave No Trace. And I was like, hey, just wanna let you know, Foster mentioned uh, that working on Galveston was, you know, the producers made it like uh, an actual family. So, you know, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I, I love you know, that. Yeah, I think there, there's a lot of a lot to be said there of your work when you have the actors even being like, yep, let's keep the producers on set. Um, so kudos to you. Um, I have to ask, though, uh, before we dive into the other, uh, the last bit of your uh, resume here, side note, uh, when you choose, when you choose a project, how do the casting directors get involved? Because I actually jumped to Gabelson's IMDb page here while we're talking and noticed that Carrie Barden and Paul Schnee are uh, attached to that. Um, Carrie recently, actually, I've become friends with. So great guy. If anyone yeah. doesn't know Carrie, he's an awesome guy. Um do you kind of do like a short list of casting directors and you let them know who you want and then you go from there? How does that work? How does that process work? Yeah, good question. Um, so Carrie and Paul actually cast compliance. So I met them on that film. And the thing with really with any key member of your team, like a casting director or a pr production designer, cinematographer, editor, other department heads, when you find somebody that's great, you want to work with them on every film. Um, obviously, that gets confused and becomes impossible to do all the time because sometimes there are other people involved in the film like the director who has, you know, their own people that they also want to work with. Um, and then sometimes your favorite people just aren't available. But in the case of, of Paul and Carrie, they, that was, they were so great that we just, you know, have wanted to work with them several times over since then and have been fortunate enough to do so. Uh, and, you know, we've, we've worked, we've just worked with a short list of some really great, casting directors and the way that that process works is they are really your creative partners in in the casting process where a good casting director is not just going through some sort of cattle call of who signs up to audition for this film but is giving you a short list of not only people that creatively could feel like the right fit for the film but that they know through just what they do, 
that these are people that might actually do it, you know, because you're always up against uh, your budget when you're trying to bring good actors to to a film. You you know, you're not able to offer them a lot of money. So they know if there's a, a big name actor that's maybe looking to do uh, more of a prestige type of project, if there is a hole in their schedule, um, you know, if they like working with first time directors, these are the things that this is the type of insight that's invaluable that a, that a good casting director brings to the table. So uh, Paul and Carrie certainly check those boxes and we've we've been really lucky working with some great casting directors over the years. You mentioned a little bit ago the importance of hiring a female director to tell the story of Galveston. Now, I'm wondering, when it comes to picking projects from here on out, how on your mind is the idea of picking a project that can uplift a marginalized voice or hire a person of color or a woman to sit in the director's chair and tell a story that reflects their life? I would say it's top of mind for me personally. It's it's something that means a tremendous amount to me uh, and that, you know, I think we have thought about throughout uh, the recent history of our film projects, but that we certainly now have been paying closer attention to than more than ever for for all the, you know, the right reasons. Uh, I think there's, you know, a reckoning here in, in the country and in the industry where, you know, in order to truly bring equality to the table um, across races, genders, orientations, everything that has to be a conscious effort to hire from the outset people that reflect directly those perspectives. So. Um, it's something that we want to do and do better uh, at, um, you know, that, that's top to bottom. That's not just in terms of the types of stories that we're looking at, but it's the filmmakers, it's the members of the crew, it's the members of the cast. Uh, I think it just has to be a commitment from everybody that is building these projects from the ground up to to take that on and do it as best as they can so to get us caught up to where you're currently at uh, on your resume um the beach house is a film you've got coming out it is listed as a horror film my question to you is People like in this industry, like Jamie Lee Curtis to James Cameron to Francis Ford Coppola. I mean, the horror seems to be a big base where people start. You seem to go there after you're already established. And I think horror gets a weird, uh, a weird hatred for it as a genre as a whole. So why did you choose horror as your next project? Um, you know, we, I don't, this is strange in that I don't know if it's even feels <laughs> believable, but we never really go after any particular genre. And the reason I say that it might be hard to believe is that if you look at the films that 
that my company has produced over the years, it really is such an eclectic mix of genres. Like we really have kind of done everything, but that's been accidental in a way. Like we, we haven't said, okay, well, we just did a rom-com. Now we want to do sci-fi. And after that, we want to do a road movie. And then we want to do a horror film. It just, it just has happened to, to fall into place like that um, based on at the time what script and what package of a film we're most attracted to. And that really was the case with The Beach House as well. I mean, I, I love horror, but I love auteur horror. You know, I love because that's typically the type of films that we produce so it's the type of film horror films that i like horror films that are really driven by a specific directorial vision um and that was what we saw in the script director combo of the beach house and why we wanted to make it um so we don't we don't have any i don't have any creative mandate going into the selection of films it just happens to be happens it has to be something that just resonates with me on a on a level that i can't even necessarily articulate <laughs> um so that that was the case with that film and horror seen a big resurgence in the last decade too i mean everything from uh hereditary to midsummer to the conjuring so it's not a bad genre to be in yeah well that's the thing about horror it's like a bonus to finding something that you actually like is that it is a genre that that sells well because it's not it for whatever reason is not typically predicated on the value of your personnel elements in other words you don't have to have stars in your horror movie to succeed they're usually way more concept driven um, so you'll see a lot of low budget filmmakers attracted to horror for that reason, because they can be readily marketed without having those anchor pieces that are necessarily driving the process, like in other genres. Um, so that's something that, you know, has been helpful for us too. Like we have a, I think either, I think tomorrow we might have a trailer finally dropping for the beach house in anticipation for its July 9th premiere on Shudder. And it's a really cool trailer. And part of that is, you know, the the nature of the genre. There's a lot of moments that are highly exploitable from a marketing perspective, to put it in super producing terms. (laughs) Understood. Um, Really quick before we get wrapped up, two more points I want to hit here. Your company, Low Spark Films, just signed a deal, I believe, with CBS to get into television for the first time. Um, can you tell us anything about it? Yeah, we're really excited about this. So it's a it's a first look development deal with CBS Television Studios, which is the I guess the production arm of the kind of Viacom CBS. Uh, unit and that it's not directly affiliated with CBS broadcast, um, although in their direct orbit is CBS, CBS All Access, Showtime. But this is a comp- this is a studio that develops content for all of the 
networks, including the, the streamers and, and premium cable. So we have been wanting to get into TV for a while, and we were super lucky that uh, CBS TV studios recognized what sort of sensibility and skill set that we bring to the table as film producers and felt that that's something that could translate in the current television climate, which is really, you know, if you look at, at what's on streaming and premium cable, a lot of these shows are just expanded films. I think it's just a really sophisticated type of storytelling that has has been reflected in a lot of the types of films that we've, we've done with Low Spark Films. So yes, Low Spark Television is off to the races and hopefully we'll be getting some shows on the air in the next couple of years. Solid, solid. And to take us home, we have one more question from Twitter, at CowBougie, love that, uh, love that handle, um, wants to know, in a industry that is all about referral only and having money, what is your best advice that you can give to someone who wants to make films and get it out there to be seen? Yeah, I mean, this is the big question um, that so many emerging filmmakers are asking. Um, to be honest, there's not a great shortcut. You kind of, this is, I don't know if this is, is an answer that maybe will cause most people to bristle or if they'll embrace this, but you, you have to make something fantastic, like really exceptional to get noticed. Uh, I mean, obviously there, there are exceptions and sort of gimmicky ways that some some things make it through. But for the most part, the filmmakers that are kind of coming up and getting noticed by the industry have done something really cool. And it doesn't mean that it has to be a big budget thing. It just has to show, you know, what you bring to the table as a filmmaker in a powerful way. And, you know, I see so many filmmakers now, young filmmakers, who are, are trying to do something far beyond their resources. And the result is something that really is exposed as less than strong. And you know what, what filmmakers, emerging filmmakers need to understand is that these films that they're making, there's no special category for locally produced no budget films like you're ultimately going to be judged by audiences and the industry by the same standards that are applied to every film that's in the marketplace including from the best filmmakers in the world so really take that time to make put a premium on the script and if you're not a naturally gifted writer bring in somehow a writer who is strong to help you. Um, you know, just do work within your resources, make something that has a strong personal skew. And, you know, if it's good, it'll, it'll get noticed. Tyler, thank you so much for coming on with us. Oh, my pleasure. I really enjoyed it, guys. Yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah, it's been fantastic. It's nice uh, talking to you. Uh, we haven't spoken in quite a bit, mostly because I moved away. So this has been fun. <laughs> well, we'll keep in better touch, but great connecting with you guys. And thanks again for having me. Of yeah. course. 
Of course. Well, Queens, you've heard it from Tyler Davidson himself. Um, with that said, I'm Joey Gentili. And I'm Brandon Stanwick. And this has been a bonus episode of Academy Queens, a conversation with Tyler Davidson. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye.